if you're new to Grace Fellowship, maybe even again your first Sunday, welcome. We've been in a series of messages we're calling Tough Questions. Actually, the answers, the question's easy to pose. The answer is the challenging thing. And one of the tough ones that we take on today is a question that can shut down a good conversation pretty quickly. And maybe even one, if you're a believer, that you hope that no one asks you. And it's this question, is Jesus the only way to God? It feels like a catch-22 because if you say yes to that question, people may tune you out thinking, well, that's narrow and that's dogmatic, an opinion. But then if you say no and the person you're talking with professes to be a believer... That person might look at you and go, are you even a Christian? How can you think that, that there's uh, only one way, uh, not one way? Is Jesus the only way to God? Well, that's a, the question we're going to answer this morning. And, and you know what? I could just answer it in a single word, and we could just dismiss and go to lunch, all right? But the reality is, There is a problem in answering yes exclusively because of what it creates in us when we say that. Is Jesus the only way to God? Yes. Yes, He is. If you are talking about the God of the Bible, the revealed creator of the world, the God of Abraham, Isaac, David, and Daniel the sovereign ruler, the owner ultimately of it all, this very room he owns. Yes. Resounding yes, yes, yes. The Bible is clear. Jesus is the way. However, it might be no for you. You say, well, what do you mean, Brian? I'm talking about the little g God. Do you know that the Bible talks about the little g gods of our life? He, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 and 6 says, For although there are many so-called little g gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom all we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So, the Bible even acknowledges there are other gods, substitute gods for the real God. You may have grown up with some of this. Maybe you have a Hindu background that basically believes there are many. Or maybe you subscribe to Buddhism, which actually doesn't even acknowledge that God is, doesn't believe necessarily. Or the God of Islam. That basically subscribes that God can be only known by obeying His call to submit your life to Him and seeking to please Him. But personally, you cannot know a God outside of you who is so so awesome. So if those are your gods, the answer actually is no. In fact, all of us, all of us worship something. 
And it may not be those things. It could be relationship. It could be circumstance. It could be even we worship cars or houses or vacations or looks or whatever you value the highest, your heart's going to go that direction. And so you'll worship there. And that too might be your God. But when we look at the God revealed in Scripture, singularly, Jesus is the way to God. So it's important that we define these terms because personal relationship with God is defined clearly in Christianity and it is a single course. But this is answering that question in the affirmative, saying yes becomes extremely offensive to us, a stumbling block. And you may be tempted even this morning, I know, to begin tuning out or crossing your arms thinking, there you go again, dogmatism, narrow-minded, that's what Christians are. And I understand that. But I want to just have a conversation with you, Christian and non-Christian alike today, and want you to know that I understand that even believers have, sometimes this is a stumbling block for them, God makes one way to him? Really? Why is this such a stumbling block? Well, I want to show you a few reasons. First, it's a stumbling block because it sounds so arrogant to say he's the only way. After all, how can you know? Are you a know-it-all? Who likes a know-it-all? Nobody likes a know-it-all. And you also know, I hope you do, that you and I are never going to argue someone into the kingdom of God. You're never going to argue someone into Christ. Aren't Christians supposed to be humble? Well, yes. Absolutely Christians are supposed to be humble. Humility should characterize believers. But just because someone is foolishly arrogant, you know that really doesn't make them incorrect. Let me illustrate. About 30 years ago, Amy and I lived in New Orleans. And a few years after we left New Orleans, we went back to, for a visit to see some friends. And we stayed in a downtown hotel. And right across the street was a brand new restaurant. And if you don't know this, uh, New Orleans is known for food and restaurants. And this particular new restaurant right across the street was, um, its namesake was from this guy that had left Commander's Palace, which is an old guard restaurant in New Orleans. And this new young upstart, his name was Emeril, and he started this restaurant. It was meant to make Creole cooking more accessible, more affordable. I love more affordable, especially when you're poor, and I was poor. So Amy and I said, can't afford dinner, we're going to go over there and have dessert. So we go across the street about 9.30 at night to have dessert. Walk in, sure enough, there's a table available. We sit down, they bring us the dessert menu. Right at the top of the dessert menu is Emerald's Banana Cream Pie. And like a guy that doesn't know his way around, I don't know why we do this. What is the, what is the waiter going to say? But this is what we do. So, is it good? Right? Is it good? Well, this guy, when I say that, he said, 
It's worth every penny. I looked at the price. It was $8. Now, folks, you can't go to McDonald's for $8 now. But $8 30 years ago is like paying $14 or $15 for a piece of pie today. A single piece of pie. And here he is arrogantly saying, it's worth every penny. Uh, You only live once, so we order one piece of pie. They bring it out to us. And they set it in front of us. Here's what it looked like. And the waiter was wrong. A single bite was worth the $8. I'm like wanting to reach across the table and take it away from Amy. This, and he was arrogant, but he was right. And just because someone's arrogant doesn't remove the fact. Facts do not need to be communicated arrogantly, Christian. Be gentle and be, be authentic, not arrogant. So those of you who sit in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer and you've experienced arrogance from Christians... I really wish I could undo all that in your life today. Sincerely sorry. But for me to tell you something different, that the the Bible teaches that there's many ways to God, that's actually less than caring. I'm not telling you the truth. It would leave you to chance. You'd be like Alice in Alice in Wonderland who arrives at the fork of the road and finds the Cheshire cat there. She looks at him and says, well, which way should I go? If you know the story, the cat looks back at her and says, well, that really depends on where you want to arrive. To which she says, I don't know. To which he says, then I guess it really doesn't matter which way you choose. I want you to know it does matter what you choose. It ultimately matters. We have got to understand that arrogance is wrong. Authentic Christianity is right. And this question is a stumbling block because it sounds so arrogant, but but it's nevertheless true. Secondly, it's a stumbling block Because it insults us, it insults one of our highest values, which is freedom. You know, saying Jesus is the only way is seemingly an affront to freedom. And for Americans, this is especially offensive. Because freedom is celebrated, it's fundamental to our way of life. We laud freedom. The freedom of speech, the freedom of thought, even the freedom of religion. We propagate freedom and democracy. It's who we are. We love liberty. We even, we even celebrate it with what? Fireworks, right? It's who we are. A premium value is placed upon it. And even today, a greater premium than what it was 200 years ago. Tim Keller says there's a reason why freedom is so valuable today. In his book, Making Sense of God, he says, I quote, In the 20th century, 
Historical trends contributed further toward freedom's ascendancy to become the ultimate value. Both fascism in Germany and communism in Russia led to totalitarianism, violence on an unprecedented scale. Thinkers of the day were aghast who had, both on the left and the right, thought that their respective political systems would eliminate social problems and human suffering. But of course, they did not. Philosophy has not solved suffering. And today we find ourselves where freedom is interpreted with zero constraints, living that way, answering to no one, where no rules and life limits are scorned, especially if there's no God. Morality is viewed as something that man makes. But even postmodern thinking, these thinkers find a conundrum. Humanity is to believe to be basically good. Even Christians think that. Humanity ought to be, and we are, kind of basically good. That's what we think. Social problems, though, are acknowledged, even evil. But even, too, these things are seen as man-made social structures. One idea is just as good as the next. So, in essence, here's what happens. If we commit genocide, we simply make it lawful. And it ultimately becomes acceptable. We advocate that humanity is advancing, yet we stand in shock and horror as we reflect on how less than a hundred years ago, some of the most advanced peoples of the world would kill in mass millions of Jews. And we are surprised that teenagers shoot their classmates. Or uh, for unknown reasons that the FBI can't figure out why someone would stand in a hotel window and shoot concert goers. Murder and racism, neglect, you name it, they do not flow from our common good. Can we not see that when we're left to ourselves we actually find our way to not something better, but to greater godlessness. That's what we do. We're fallen. Freedom does not free us. And living without constraint and forming your own rules, it actually only takes you so far. It's not true freedom. See, a locomotive engine is not free to operate as it was designed to operate unless it remains on the tracks for which it was built. We, though, prefer multiple choices. Multiple choices means freedom. And so, we find it a stumbling block to say Jesus is the only way because it insults freedom. Third, The reason why it's such a stumbling block is because truth 
gets placed outside of us. It gets objectively placed outside of you. This means this. You and I don't get to decide what is actually the truth. It exists apart from you. Truth has to be wrestled with. Decisions made about it. Will you submit to truth? Or will you continue to believe? And this is a popular belief. I answer to no one. I'm responsible only to myself. You ever heard someone say, you're not the boss of me? You hear that? Right? I get it. This is a popular thought. Is, but is that true? Is that actually true? Well, yes, it is true. You seemingly can do whatever you want. And I know I can't make you think the way I think nor necessarily should you, about anything. But ultimately, it is false. Because you and I are not totally self-sufficient. You've never actually been a totally free agent. The attitude that says, I'm my own man, I do my own thing, ignores others' investment in you. Birthing you, feeding you, clothing you, educating you. Even providing the groceries that you find in the grocery store when you go there. I hope you didn't, all, you didn't all put them in there, did you? You and I are dependent on others. The driver that touts, I can drive however I want. This is a free country. Ignores that he or she did not exclusively fund the roads, nor build the car they drive, or refine the gasoline. All of us have dependence on others. All of us are responsible and accountable for ourselves and, yes, even the safety of others. It is actually an intellectually dishonest way of thinking that you are a free agent. And what that ultimately does to you if you think that way, it leads you to a place of hopelessness and being alone. What we find ourselves today um, facing is that if we ever wonder, like, what is God actually like, and we don't have a lot of time for Him, is what we find ourselves in a culture that basically is exalted man and what He can do, and God has given us some amazing things that we can do. The miracles of medicine, transportation, communication. Praise God for the wonderful things He's given us. But when man exalts himself, this is what happens. God gets minimized or he gets villainized. And who he is actually is forgotten. We distort him. We make him a cosmic bully with unattainable standards. Or we seem as weak and he's unable or unwilling to do us any good. And this is why we eventually think, well, actually there's no real truth. Everything is relative, so at best you live skeptical. And so if you call yourself a skeptic, I'd like to ask you a hard question, but an honest question. that You ought to wrestle with. For the skeptical who sits and hears this message, 
and who believes that they make their own truth. Have you ever considered that if God only exists within the confines of how you determine truth, how can you ever have a God that disagrees with you? Unbeknownst to us, what we've done is we have embraced pluralism. Pluralism is a fancy word, a common theme in our culture that basically states that if God is, there are many ways to Him. Just choose one, they all lead to the same place. And it sounds nice. And oh, it sounds accommodating, making allowances for whatever you choose to believe But that too is actually not accurate. Pluralism blunts faith. This is why you and I can talk about God all day long. But the moment that you may mention Jesus, people start squirming. Pluralism ignores the rich heritage of all faiths, of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, as well as Christians. Christianity alone shows us that God, He comes after us. Who pursues a loving relationship with us. And ultimately gives up His freedom by going to the cross for us. But pluralism looks and says, you cannot believe that you're exclusively right. Everybody's right. Have you ever considered that that very statement creates a glaring problem? We cannot all be right. Because our convictions are distinct. By saying that every path leads to God, we are showing that we actually don't know what we really believe, what others believe, or your life is such right now Whatever's going on, you just don't care. So when it is stated that Jesus and Christianity is unlike other religions, the truth is you and I need to determine what that means for you. What's that mean for me? What is it that Jesus said? What did he do distinctly? Uh, What's the realities about him? that actually is the best news ever. Even though it's one, it's the best news ever. I want to show you, I want you to consider three crucial realities about Jesus. Number one, Jesus' distinct claims set him apart from all others. Now many people say that Jesus was a good teacher, a great example cared deeply for the oppressed. And even today, he's put forth as an example to follow. However, what he actually did was claim what no other religious founder has claimed. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, you have your Bible. Turn with me to John chapter chapter 8. Because... We have people all the time say, where did Jesus say this? Where did he make this claim? Well, John chapter 8 is a place in one single verse where Jesus does exactly that. 
Chapter 8, verse 24, Christ said, I told you, he's speaking to a group, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You say, well, how is it that he's claiming to be God there? Well, you need to look at the context and you need to understand that when Jesus said, I am, in that moment, everybody that was listening to him knew what happened to Moses who stood in front of a burning bush and where Moses looked at that burning bush and he hears God talking to him and he said, when I arrive in Egypt and I say, God sent me, who are you? Because Moses didn't really know. And God responds to Moses in that moment, I am that I am. Which is, for us, hard to understand, but for the Hebrew and in the construction of the original language means this. I am, Moses, what I was, and I am right at this moment what I always have been, and I will be when you are in front of Pharaoh and in front of the Red Sea that you don't know about at this point moment. I will be at that moment what I always am, and that is sufficient for you. And so when Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, that's what he's saying. He's saying that he is God. And this is the reason why it drove the Pharisees and Sadducees crazy. He was not claiming to be a good teacher. He was claiming to be God in a body. Clear lines are drawn, and Jesus knows that although he invites belief, everyone's not going to believe. How do we know that he told the truth? We know this by his death and resurrection. He had the ability to bear your sin and defeat death, even raising himself from the grave. Sin's curse and the great enemy that every man, woman, and child in this room will face, death, Christ is the victor over. Jesus defeated death. That's not the only reality that's crucial. Here's the second one. Jesus answers ultimate questions that you don't always know how to verbalize. Now, with your Bible, turn just a few chapters back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a religious leader, and his name is Nicodemus. In verse 1, the scripture tells us that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there's important things in those first couple verses. Number one, this is not not just any yahoo off the street. This is a religious leader 
He's the enlight, he's enlightened, he's a ruler. This is a man of influence about town. And he slips over, he wants to talk to Jesus at night, whether he's trying to hide that he's talking to Jesus or nighttime was a time for uninterrupted conversation. I don't know, but what I do know is this. This man is no slouch intellectually. But he's like us sometimes. We look at Jesus on a rational plane, and this is what we say. Well, obviously you're good, and you're a good teacher. You couldn't do the things you're doing unless that's the case. Now, I want you to look down at verse 3. Jesus answered him. Here's the funny thing about this. Do you notice that Nicodemus has not asked a question? He's not asked a question, but he has questions. And those questions Jesus already knows. He knows what's rumbling around in your heart. What's my purpose? What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? What am I to do? These are the things that rumble around. We have questions about meaning, about purpose, about suffering and death. And if God is, what is he like and how can I know him? We are like this Nicodemus who does not initially ask a question, but Jesus gives answers of ultimate importance about how life is made brand new. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? doesn't make sense. That's not in the text, that's me, all right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now this born again literally is a word anathen. Depending on your translation, you may see it a a variety of different ways. It may say be born again, it may say born from above, or born anew. All of that is accurate translation. But what is very clear is that there is one way. Born again implies this. You must begin again like a little child dependent on another. Children born of their mother and their father begin dependent, trusting all of their needs, all that they ultimately will need for life, they're going to uh, provide. Nicodemus was the epitome of the enlightened person. He's rational, but Jesus wants a different conversation. And he says, don't marvel. He's emphatically teaching, born anew is not only possible, but it's a necessity and can be a reality for those who believe. In John chapter 3, Jesus went on to say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in verse 14 and 15, So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So not just a restart of your life here, but born again for eternity. 
That's what Jesus does. Is there more to this life? Yes. Can you have it? Yes. And what if you don't believe or you don't think or you just think, I can't know? Well, John tells us something else. Do you know the Bible actually tells us that you and I actually don't have the option of not knowing Jesus' voice? For every person in this room will hear Jesus' voice. In chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus said, an hour, an hour is coming and now is where the dead will hear the voice of God or the Son of God and those that hear will live. He's talking about the walking dead, the spiritually dead. You will hear God speak to your heart and you will believe to eternal life. You'll live. But he's also talking in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 5 when he says, Do not marvel that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That is sobering. That you really don't have an option. You can choose to reject, but the idea that you just won't exist is not so. Scripture maintains that Christ will call you from the grave. Why? Because he has power over the grave. You and I might prefer Jesus to be a good teacher and thoughts of his divinity just kind of set that aside. We don't like to think about that he reaches our inner motives and calls us to surrender to him. You really might kind of be like Napoleon. Who knew he could not ignore him but did not know what to do with him. And he read the Gospels in his last day on the island of Elba and he told General Bertrand this, and I quote, I know men. I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance just doesn't exist. Everything in him astonishes me. His spirit overalls me. His will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world... There is no possible term of comparison. So let's stop. Let's stop with the idea that Jesus is a good teacher or simply a good example. Here is the truth. He claimed to be God who could alone through faith in Him bring you to God. Have you ever considered that there's nothing good in that claim? Unless it is absolutely profoundly true. And it is true. He can bring you to God. Third, Jesus can give you a relationship with God that only He offers. A personal relationship. No other religion points you away from your effort. No other religion points you away from either emptying yourself of all knowledge and being one with the universe or get busy. 
Nothing else does it but Christianity. Christianity points you to another. Points you to him who accomplished for you by paying your sin debt, giving you forgiveness, reconciling you to God, giving you a brand new life, providing a new identity right now and for eternity. That's what Jesus brings. That's what Jesus offers. So when Jesus says in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, he clearly indicated there is one way to God. But even when we hear that, and we hear that Jesus said, I am the way, do you know what we sometimes think? Oh, he's laying out a road map for us to climb the mountain to God. That's not so. Jesus being the way is Jesus is saying, I'm making the way down to you. I'm coming after you. I love you. I want an intimate relationship with you. And I make the way for that to happen. And then when he says, I'm the truth, yes, like Nicodemus, he knows you long for answers. You've got deep questions. Your life can feel very messy. But he says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, that if you abide in his word, you are truly his disciple, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's what will make you free. Truth has a name, and his name is Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul said, if you hope in Christ in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Yes, Christianity is about more than the here and now. It's about eternity. Biblical Christianity, yes, honest biblical Christianity, says that there's an exclusive claim that there's one path to God. Jesus is the only way. And I know that it only works one way. It only works for the person that sits in a room like this and hears a message like this or hears God speaking in Scripture that when Scripture says that we're all sinners... That we've all minimized God, we've all embraced pluralism. You go, that's me. I'm the sinner. Christianity only works for those that know that they're sinners. Christianity only works for the broken and the weak from life. The person who knows, I have made a mess of things. And boy, I'd like to start over. Christ offers you a reset now and for eternity. His presence in your life, forgiveness, future grace, that's what he promises. And he does not turn away from those who long for it, who thirst for it, and turn to him. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. He acted for you. You and I can't do it. He offers you a love relationship, a gift 
of salvation by grace through faith and nothing else. There's an important question this morning. Talked about a lot of things, but you might be one of those individuals who sat in this room today and you go, you know, I can agree with a lot of that. And so the important question is, do you believe Christ's claims in Scripture? And you might go, well, yeah, yeah, I kind of do. I think so. But that's not the most important, the most critical of questions. The most critical question is this. And the question that will determine your eternity. Will you trust in him alone? Placing your faith in him as the son of God who made payment in full for your sins and will you surrender your life to him? That is the most important question. For some of you, this may seem like too much. In fact, up to this point, the Bible may have been fable to you and you may even consider it irrelevant for the complex issues that you face today. You might even identify with a guy like Voltaire, the famed French philosopher. Smart dude to a point. He said, and I quote, the Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what Rogues teach and what young children are made to learn by heart. He went on to say before his death in 1778, a long time ago. A hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. A hundred years after his death, the French Bible Society set up its headquarters and printing operation in Voltaire's old home in Paris. Not asking you to believe that all your problems are going to vanish if you trust Christ. You may not know all that you do believe about the Bible, but I am asking you this. Can you see the love of God in Jesus for you? Will you place your trust in Him? Will you place it in Him alone to bring you to God? And if you will, on the verification of what God's Word says, today, in this room, He will give you new life. Rebirth. Born from above. Sealed for eternity. Right with God. And the only thing that you do is respond in faith. That's what he offers. Consider that offer exclusive. It's important. Will you respond today? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that there's not many ways that you actually are so great 
We might even wonder, how could there be any way compared to us? But you've made a way. Will you draw us today for the young man or the young woman, for the retired man or retired woman who sit in this room today and has never come to grips of whether they've trusted Christ? Would you draw them to you today? To trust you alone and by faith alone to be made right. Do it by your grace, Lord, is our prayer. Amen.